Hi friends, welcome. I'm glad you could join me. Many people dream of traveling for an extended period of time. Slow travel is a completely different experience than taking a week or two off from work and visiting a resort in Jamaica or Dominican Republic. For one thing, it's much cheaper when you can stay a while. Another thing is that if you're in another country for several weeks or several months, it gives you a chance to immerse yourself in the culture and live the way that they do. You find yourself shopping for groceries at the same places that they do, or maybe getting a gym membership and working out where they work out, such as the case with Lady O and I. One of the things that my guests on today's podcast episode talk about is how, although they're early retired and slow traveling the world, they're not on vacation. It sounds like vacation to your friends and family, I can certainly relate, because you're on an island in the Gulf of Thailand or Bali or wherever you are in the world, but they still have projects that they work on, and it's not in their budget to spend money like vacationers. So it's living deliberately and conscious of the budget that you need to stay within. Otherwise, you'd be going back to work soon enough. It's why they take advantage of Airbnb extended stay discounts. And like us, too, they eat a lot of meals at home, or at least home away from home. I'll give my guests a proper introduction. Mr. and Mrs. Nomad Numbers are from the nomadic travel blog, Nomad Numbers, where they share their travel journey and all of their cost numbers to inspire others on their journey. Both had a 13-year career at major tech companies in Silicon Valley and reached financial independence in their 30s. They did it through a combination of high savings rates and investing, quit the corporate world, and a year and a half ago started to travel. They're now traveling indefinitely at the ages of 36 and 37. Pretty cool. Mr. and Mrs. Nomad Numbers, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm glad you could join me on such short notice. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to connect. So first question is for you, Mrs. Nomad. How much of your initial attraction to Mr. Nomad can be attributed to his French accent? <laughs> I'd say that's a huge part of it, probably more than 50%, actually. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He's a bit embarrassed by his accent, but I think it's really cute. Really? Are you are you trying to uh, Americanize it, or because I think that people should try to preserve their accent? Like I like my wife is from she's Hispanic and she's nearly lost. I think she has lost it completely, and I kind of wish she would mix in a little senorita every once in a while <laughs> with her accent. Yeah, no, so when uh, I don't mind keeping it now, because I think um, a lot of people in the U.S. find it charming, and I thought at the beginning it was a joke, but I think people seem it's not. to like the accent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I haven't made any effort whatsoever, um, and uh, yeah, I think... Uh, Mrs. Nomad Numbers liked it, so I'm going to keep it like it. People would kill for that accent, dude. <laughs> yeah, good accent. So we're leaving Chiang Mai in the morning. We have been here for nearly four weeks, and we're going to Koh Samui next for three weeks, Bali for the following three weeks, and then we head back to the States. So about two and a half months we're gone on this trip. How long are you here, and is this time that you're here typical of your normal travels so we are um in southeast asia so it's going to be the first time for me in southeast asia so we decided to spend six months here we are traveling slowly so in six months we're probably going to spend two months in thailand um one month currently in chiang mai and then one month in Koh Lanta to see the beach 
Then we are going to go to Malaysia, and we know that we want to finish our trip in Bali, so we haven't uh, finalized the entire itinerary. But yeah, that's going to be a six-month stop for yeah. Southeast. We have to about mid-January planned out, and then we'll figure out the rest then. Really cool. We're going to Mexico January, February. So we have planned out through the third week of February, and that's it. But we've fallen in love in the past year with Prague and here. I think Prague and here are like one in one A. That's how much we like this oh, place. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be tough in the future because of opportunity cost, right? Everywhere you go, you can't go to the other place. And you start learning all these great places. And how do you choose going forward? Exactly. We're running into that issue. When we spent the summer in Europe and we're like, oh, Portugal, this is it. And then now we're here in Chiang Mai. I'm like, oh, wait, we really like Chiang Mai now. How do we divide up our time between Europe and Asia? So, I mean, that one's not too hard. We think we could spend the summers in Europe and the winters in Southeast Asia. But, yeah. Let me write that choices. plan down. I like that. <laughs> and another great part about this, like you said, you're going to Koh Lanta after this, right? And we're going to Koh Samui. Some of the popular islands of Thailand are some of the most beautiful places in the world. And I've been to Phi Phi, and I've been to, this will be my first time in Koh Samui. Have you been to any of the other islands here? Uh, yeah, so for me, it's my first time ever on Southeast Asia, so not at all. I've been to Koh Samui, but that was a long time ago. I think it must have been 10 years ago since I've been to Koh Samui, so I'm sure all the islands are really different now. And yeah, we, we, we're really looking forward to spending some time in Koh Lanta because we spend a long period of time in each place, and we weren't sure how we'd feel spending a month on an island, but Koh Lanta seems to be a place where people actually live and settle, so I think it'll be a good balance of beach life and like normal living. And scuba diving. I'm, I'm a scuba oh, yeah. diver, and I've been raving about Thailand. As you mentioned, some of the best beach, some of the, the best reefs, uh, and apparently there was some gigantic fish out there. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing some of that as well. Yeah, my first time in Thailand, I went to PP Island. It takes about 24 hours from Houston, travel time, total travel time, to get from Houston to Phuket and then get on a ferry to PP Island. Wow. So it is quite the distance, but it is so worth it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I read where you guys traveled the world on $30,000 in your first year of early retirement. How did you do that? I think it's a combination of mindful travel, and we can dig into those topics, but uh, yeah, traveling mindfully, traveling slowly, travel doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't. But people don't realize when you travel in short stints, you spend five or six times what you and I might spend in a week, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. When you slow travel, like we mentioned, we tend to spend a month in each place. And once you start reaching that month threshold, you start reaching rents that are closer to what the locals pay. Of course, we'll pay a premium for Airbnbs, et cetera, but it's just a fraction of what you would pay for a nightly hotel. And so we end up saving a ton that way. Yeah, and also we don't have to rush things out. So we are also savings in the sense that we don't pay a premium to book a package tour and to try to squeeze everything in a day. Uh, we don't go. We are not that we don't go to all-inclusive resorts because we like cooking. It's kind of our lifestyle as well. So the place we also picked uh, to live that life are not as expensive as they are if you, as you mentioned, have a very short vacation mm. and you want to squeeze everything. Yeah. That's true. This is not vacation for us, and it's very confusing to family members and friends because it looks like we're on vacation, like we're in Chiang Mai and we're about to go to 
an island in, in Thailand, but actually this is our life. And so we try to live a normal life. So normal life means going to the grocery store, running errands, um, spending a lot of our time at home and working on projects. We're not sightseeing every day. We're not doing a tour every day. We're not, um, you know, taking... Drinking pina coladas. <laughs> exactly. So that's not, that's not in our budget. We, we just do normal everyday things, but in cool locations. That's a good point. We got asked today while we were ziplining if this was our honeymoon. And I said, yes, and then whispered to the wife, we've been honeymooning for, for 18 months, right? That's right? So what they did was they took 18 pictures of us like, while we were ziplining. And I know they wouldn't have done that if it wasn't our quote-unquote honeymoon. So, um, But you guys, I want to go back to the, the amount that you spent that first year. You weren't expecting to spend that little, right? Weren't you expecting to spend closer to 40000 a year? Uh, yeah, that's correct. That was um, when we decided to take off, leave San Francisco and start that journey. We were expecting 40000 um, which was about, I think, 3300 per month. And um, yeah, it just turns out that um, as we were uh, visiting those countries, so we spent about three months in Canada, and then we went for three months and a half in Mexico, and then we went to the island of Aruba. Um, and spend some time back in the U.S. And yeah, so all of that together, I think the, yeah, things were a bit cheaper. Yeah, so we saved in areas we didn't know we were going to expect to save and didn't necessarily need to. And then we spent in more areas than we wanted to as well on like extra gear and stuff like that. But in the end, we ended up spending less than 30K, which we were really happy with because... Yeah, we set out on this trip thinking that 40K would be a good goal. Um, and we easily came under 30, just under 30, I think it was 28. Yeah, 28,000. <laughs> so you said 40K was 3,300 a month or something like yeah. that, which obviously 3,300 isn't as even of a number as 40,000. So how did you come to the 40,000 number? Why were you thinking that's what it would be? Um, I think we just... I think we just like randomly picked that. I mean, we knew a lot of people are like, we knew that people could travel around that budget from the research we were doing. So it didn't have anything to do with the 4% rule perhaps? Yeah, so, so we came to the decision that we were financially independent in that we fell within the 4% rule for our annual expenses. Um, we actually have quite a bit of buffer on top of um, what we actually spend per year because we didn't feel safe um, retiring exactly with the 4% rule. So we, instead of saving 25X, we're, we saved a bit more than that. 25X your annual expenses, yes, which is correct. another way of figuring out. That's correct. Okay. The 4% yep. rule. Um, so yeah, so 40K we felt comfortable where we were within, um, I guess, under the 4% rule and that we felt comfortable we would live a, com um, a comfortable lifestyle because we knew in the past, from past travel and from living in San Francisco, that we could spend a certain amount on food and groceries and accommodation and be comfortable. Okay, so I would imagine then that you supplement your... Are you living off of dividends and interest primarily? And then I would imagine you supplement with rental income? That's correct. Okay, so we do the same thing. Yeah. And so it makes it tough to come up with this 4% rule because if you're worth, let's say, a million dollars, if you're living on 4%, that's 40K a year, which is $3,300 a month. Well, it's tough to factor in real estate into the 4% rule. 
but it feels really good to have that consistent income that isn't subjected to the ebbs and flows of the market, right? So is that how you're thinking in terms of the 4% rule? Well, we don't want to spend that much of our portfolio. So we have this rental income and that kind of makes us feel a little more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we got into the rental income because we're fairly new to the real estate investment. We actually got into it probably, what, two years ago? Yeah, when we stumbled about the entire fire movement. Yeah. So to give more context to your audience, we, we work in tech. So I grew up in France. You probably can tell that with my accent. Mm-hmm. Moved to the U.S. 2008, starting as a software engineer, make uh, a good living, and uh, because this is paying relatively well in the Bay Area, um, and starting investing my money into whatever my employers was providing me with. So that was 401k as well as ESPP, which are preferential share uh, of the company I was working for at a discount. Um, but working for those companies for 10 years, I basically owned a ton of individual stocks. While the market was going up, 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 that money starting to significantly compound over time. So we realized that most of our savings and Mrs. Normal Numbers was similar in the sense that she also worked in tech. So we ending up with that nest eggs, but of individual stock. So when we discover fire and that low cost index funds, we realized, whoa, let's try to migrate all of that into those low cost index funds and we should be golden. So we starting with that. But then Mrs. Normal Numbers was not very comfortable with the fact that, as you mentioned, the roller coaster of the stock market can impact significantly from one year to the next hour um, portfolio. So that's why we started back in 2016 to purchase property in Texas, Houston. Yeah. And wow. we have been diversifying uh, since then, but I think I would say it's a one-third to third ratio right now, or even less, like one-third of real estate and two-third of... Yeah, something like that. Yeah, the majority is definitely in index funds where we started. We just didn't feel comfortable with how high the market was right now, and then given that we were about to retire early and travel, we want to have a more stable income coming in from rent, and so we diversified by getting a couple of rental properties in Houston, Texas. I like that. In preparation for this podcast, I learned that you as a software engineer wanted to increase your income, got a job in the United States and doubled that income. Is that right? Yes. So in France, I don't know. Yes. So so you're correct. I wanted initially, so I did not know anything about fire, early retirement and all of that. So I just wanted to move to the U.S. because... As a software engineer, the Silicon Valley is kind of the Eldorado, the best place you can be. And I was like working, uh, I was working for uh, one of the tech giants um, at the time in France. So uh, it was Yahoo. So moving to the HQ in the Silicon Valley was just a dream. Um, Then I realized that then the income was much more higher at the time. Um, But because... I knew the value of money in France. I was not increasing my lifestyle as much. I kept pretty, like, um, my spending was pretty similar to what it was in France, which, without knowing, was already putting me in at least the 50% savings rate bucket. Um, And 
with San Francisco being a place when when you start renting, your rent is controlled for all properties. Basically, my rent from 2008-2018 was pretty much the same. I think the increase year over year were more or less 1%. While, as you know, the market has been more than doubled and the place I was renting in 2008 had more than doubled by 2018 in terms of rent. So... Um, yes, yeah, so I knew, well, I moved to the U.S. for the opportunity, but then I quickly realized that, wow, I can make a lot of money in the U.S., which uh, definitely has been accelerating my accumulation phase for the past 10 years. And is it safe to say that some of these individual stocks that you purchased were technology stocks? Yeah, that were, is okay. correct, which, again, um, I didn't know. I just wanted to put my money in a vehicle that I thought was safe, even though it was the, probably the riskiest things I, I could have done. But yeah, that has been also um, helping increasing my uh, earnings through those investments. Yeah. One stock that you bought. Um, so one stock that uh, Apple. <laughs> That's a good uh, one. <laughs> uh, I have the stock for my company. So Yahoo was one of them. Um, even though the company was not doing well, holding over uh, almost 10 years period, uh, everything was probably a winner. Uh, Tesla was also a, a good one. Uh, but that was also me doing a little bit of individual stock picking at the time. I think the biggest chunk was definitely that Yahoo stock that I was... Basi- so basically that ESPP, they, they automatically withdraw uh, up to 15% of your paycheck before tax and give you a stock at... Uh, it, it, the ESPP is different by company, but we'll get a 15% discount on the purchase price and the price was locked on a two-year window. So in 2008, the stock was pretty low because there was a lot of drama. So I think I've got the share at 10 bucks. And then from there, it keeps going on. But for the first two years, I was still being able to get it at 10 bucks. It was already at 25, 30 bucks. So you can imagine the increase. And then I sold it. It was pretty close to 50 or 60 bucks. Yeah, we were lucky that tech did well because we weren't doing the right things in terms of diversification. Basically, every all of our assets were in tech because we both worked tech jobs, so our salaries were dependent on it. All of our stocks were tech stocks and individual tech stocks. They were not any funds of any sort. So it wasn't until we really discovered the fire movement and really educating ourselves on investment and strategy. We were like, um, I don't think we're doing the right things right now. It's worked fine for us these past 10 years, but it's really risky and we should probably get out of it and diversify. Um, and diversify. Uh, so yeah, we did that We did that pretty quickly, but uh, definitely wasn't the right thing to do <laughs> uh, in terms of like general investment strategy. Not a good idea to put all of your eggs into the one industry bucket. And even all of our eggs in the financial. I think you wanted to try real estate as well. Oh, yeah. I made some of those same mistakes, and I got into technology in 2007, and I remember every, everyone in my office saying that we missed it. Like, the big tech boom was 98, 99, 2000. People who were selling software back then were killing it, and then 04, 05, 06, they all had friends who lived in California and bought houses, and their houses had doubled in value in the last three years, and so people always felt like they missed it. Yeah, but they didn't, right? If you had been investing in tech stocks and so seven, oh eight, and got into technology and started working for some of these companies and getting stock, I mean, you you've killed it, right? And you might be a good example of that. What percentage of your income were you saving investing at the at the peak of your savings? I think we end up 
I would say 80%? At the very peak, yeah. I'd say that's when we discovered the the fire movement and were motivated and we had our plans set. Um, yeah, I think the last year was the best the because we best. knew, basically I was fed up. I was not happy with my job. I knew I had a ton of FU money. I, actually, I knew I was already at five from our target. So I decided, okay, they are giving me a hard time. I'm just going to move on. And I'm just going to look what's outside, out there. I started to apply for uh, Amazon through one of their subsidiary. And uh, they liked me, so they asked me for an offer. And I asked them something crazy, and they said yes to it. <laughs> and it was like, um, yeah, it was a lot of money. So, yeah, I think the, yeah, because I have nothing to, like, no, they would have not given it to me, I would have been okay. Um, yeah, they accepted the offer. And I, that's why I really realized that people in the Silicon Valley, and especially in tech, are making a lot of money. It's easy to earn a lot, but it's also easy to increase your lifestyle accordingly. So then you don't end up saving much. And this FU money, is that a French word, FU? No. <laughs> when, uh, FU money? Oh, wait, let's do that again. It's FU money. No, no, oh, the James Collins. Oh, you don't? Okay. So FU money, it's the, no, no, it's the American FU. Um, and it's, I think that might have been coined, so that I'm not sure, but Jim Collins wrote that book, The Simple Path to Wealth, which was, uh, it's one of the books we keep recommending um, that people that want to get into a simple strategy to build wealth over time using financial instruments and use that term FU money to say, once you get enough money that you can see, talk to your boss and say, hey, F you, I don't want to work for you anymore. Uh, that means that, yeah, you have enough money to be unemployed for six months to a year and look for something else. Basically, the courage to ask for what you want, and you you'll usually get it because you're in the power. Uh, you have the power in the negotiation. Yeah, and we've seen that work in real life towards the end of our journey. Fire journey. And so you turned Amazon down after they? No, no, no. I took the offer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I went there. I am just going to work there for. Um, I was thinking eighteen months. Turns out to be. Well, after eighteen months, I give my notice, and because they like what I did, they say, "Well, we don't want to let you go." Um, so basically I say, well, I'm going to give, um, we are going, we just got married a couple of months before that. So I say, we decided to take on a year long honeymoon to travel the world. Um, so yeah, we are leaving, I gave notice to my apartment in San Francisco, so I cannot work for you guys anymore unless I can work remotely from Quebec and only, uh, one day a week. Because basically, I can do more of that. And they say, yes, and I keep my salary, my compensation for at least two or three months. Uh, yeah, so like I was a king and I was realizing, oh my goodness, like, you know, because of that F you money, you can just ask, as long as you are good, people will just go, what mine? Yeah, so more savings, more fun. Um, yeah. I tried to leave software companies. I think this was, well, I don't want to share what year it was because then people are going to figure out who the person was that told me this and I don't want to, I don't want to out them, but I tried to take another job. And I turned in my resignation letter and he said, close the door. This was my boss's boss. And he said, are you familiar with NFW? And I said, no, what is that? And he says, it means no effing way. And he said, no effing way. Am I losing you? What will it take? 
and I, like you, started demanding all sorts of crazy things. Okay, okay, okay. So you're right. As long as you're good and you provide value to the organization. But usually you won't know how much you're valued to the organization unless you start demanding crazy shit and take another job or take another job and then start. Or yeah. accept another job, turn in your resignation letter, and then start dating. Yeah, and then you have to make sure you understand that potentially that person will say no. Yeah. you might use your job or like something like this. So a lot of people don't have that option. Unfortunately, they live to, they need to get their job and because they have family and sometimes they have a big mortgage and all of that. So yeah, uh, it's not, uh, for us, it was easy because we saved and we had that few money. But um, yeah, a lot of people kind of take that leap and so they don't never know. Yeah. And you were in marketing for a technology company? Okay. That's right. Yeah. Right. So I was in the tech field, but uh, doing some, something completely different from Mr. Nomad and on the, on the marketing side, but always at large tech companies as well. And no temptation to get back into marketing while working at a Starbucks in Kosamui? Sometimes there is that temptation. Actually, my last job, I was able to find a company that was completely remote. So there were no offices. So it seemed like I had everything I wanted and needed and that I could travel. I could work from Mexico City, Oaxaca, Canada, which we did for a while when we were traveling. But then it got to a point where I wasn't happy because I still had all the stresses of a job. I still had meetings all day. I still had to be at specific places or not specific physical places, but I had to be online and I had to attend meetings at specific times. I had to set an alarm. And then meanwhile, I was watching Mr. Nomad members do whatever he wants during the day, having fun, exploring you know, setting his own schedule and, that, and and I was experiencing all the same stresses of work even though um, I was in these cool locations. And so it got to the point where, you know, we are financially independent and part of the benefits is that we should be able to work on the things we care about and are passionate about. And I was like, I'm just not passionate about marketing for, for tech. Like it's been good for me. It's been a great career. But if I didn't get a salary for it, I wouldn't do it. And so I didn't need the salary and I decided um, I'm going to move on. And yeah, and that's what I did. No regrets. At the time, I had a lot of anxiety because that's all I knew for a really long time. And I was used to having that consistent salary. But, um, you know, it's been a long time without that job and I'm completely much happier. And it helps to know that you can live on $30,000 a year now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All seven, no, I shouldn't say all seven, probably five of my seven listeners are in Houston. So I'm curious about the properties that you have in Houston. How, why Houston and where are they? And yeah. what kind of properties are they? Yeah, so one of them is great and one of them is not great. <laughs> so we have sort of two different experiences with our two properties in Houston. So I started on the research for real estate investment and I didn't have a ton of background. So I did a lot of my own self-education through podcasts like Bigger Pockets, reading a ton of blogs, um, reading different books, etc. And so, and I knew there was nothing in California, which is where we were based in terms of cash flow, real estate investments that didn't cost a fortune. And so I started searching outside of California and looking for places in the U.S. that had good cash flow properties still. Um, and I narrowed it down to a few states. I think I was looking in Florida, Michigan, and Texas. And those were places that had properties that were still under the 200K range, like single-family homes and under 200K. They, you could still find properties that um, 
met the 1% rule. And also they were places where the economies were still growing. And ultimately we decided on Houston, Texas because um, I didn't didn't have strong ties to any of those places, but I at least knew people that were from Houston. I knew people that went to university there. Um, I've heard I've heard stories about how great it is to grow up there and stuff like that. So at least I had some connection and I could ask friends what it's like and ask for some recommendations, even though I, I personally didn't know anyone that was still living there. Um, I didn't have any, I never lived there and I didn't have any family there. So that's when I started my search. I found a great property manager in real estate through Bigger Pockets. Uh, met with him in person. I actually made a trip to Houston, Texas to meet with him in person. Um, who was French? Who was French? <laughs> Quint- Which actually Quint- is. Coincidentally. But um, what was great about him is that he started not as a real estate invest- investor but or a real estate agent, but as a foreign investor. And so he really empathized with our position in that we actually didn't live in Texas. We weren't from there, but we were interested in investing, which is how he started. So he was living in France and he was interested in investing in property in Texas, and so he had gone through all of it himself, and then he just fell in love with uh, with real estate, and he decided to make it his full-time job and became an agent and a property investor. So he understood what we were looking for in terms of investments and numbers, whereas all other real estate agents are salespeople. And so they were trying to sell us emotionally, but I was like, I don't care about the emotional stuff. I We're doing it for investment. Like, what is what is the return on this? You know, what rents can we get? What are the vacancy rates? Like that that type of stuff they didn't really care about. Whereas this real estate agent, because he started as an investor, he completely got all of that. Um, we clicked right away and I trusted him. Um, so we started working with him and we found a couple of properties through him. Again, like I said, the, the, the two properties are pretty different. Um, one of them is in Katy, Texas. And that one we've had not good luck with. And I think it's just bad luck in that... Um, the flood happened. And so we ran into a lot of issues related to the flood because our, our property was damaged during the flood of, uh, I guess it was 2016. Harvey's. Yeah, it was Harvey's. Yeah. Um, so we ran into issues there. We had quite a bit of repairs. Our tenants weren't extremely responsible with, you know, the post-repair maintenance that needed to happen. Yeah, they were and supposed to keep the AC on. They didn't keep it on. Um, so basically, um, we can share a little bit of numbers if that's of interest. Um, so we purchased it in 2016. Yeah. It was one slightly under 150,000. Right. 150k. Um, it was pretty much ready to move in. I think the guy was selling it. Um, we didn't purchase any flood insurance. We took, uh, in Texas, we went with the cheapest insurance, like TFPA, um, because we didn't really knew too much on insurance. I think that was an oversight from ourselves. But then August hit the hurricane, the lot of flood. We were lucky that the entire house was not flooded at all. It was just a four inch of water that came through within 24 hours. Um, so that ended up costing us about 15000 dollars of repairs plus loss of vacancy for two to three months, um, aggravated by the fact that our tenants uh, left the place, uh, didn't put the AC on, so the mold was growing, so we have like some fun stuff to have to deal with that. They also have a, um, 
a son that same year, so we wanted to make sure it was extremely safe for them to move back in. So um, we did inspection and all of that. So that was kind of the first property. Yep. Um, and we almost evicted them two months ago because they stopped paying rent, uh, which uh, at none of another things of bad karma, I guess. Um, our property manager was telling us that, yeah, we've been having a lot of bad luck with that property. So far, they've been paying their rent, but we were fighting for eviction. And I think that put them, they started being very scared. I think, I think he was, I think he lost his job and it was the reason why they couldn't pay. But again, um, we give them enough times to pay. They didn't say, so let's fight for eviction. I think now they are back to normal, but that's probably some pop- property who probably wants to get rid of or resell in a couple of years. Um, the other property was something else um, that our property manager does is do foreclosure in Houston. So that's a business he started about a year ago. And basically the foreclosure, there are options for foreclosure every Tuesday of the first Tuesday of the month. And uh, those properties are just, you can just come in to the auction office doing your cash and you can just pick the property and it's yours. So what he does is do some market analysis. He downloads the list of foreclosed property. Uh, he do all of the work to make sure that the level of repair will be as minimum as possible. Uh, then there is nobody in the place. We so don't have to evict anyone. And then he guarantees the return um, to the people that want to invest to purchase those. So I think we've got that one for one, I would say 145. We added with the fee, uh, is fee and repair 155 and it was worth uh, 180 of the get-go from the time we purchased it. And this this property has been perfect. Um, we've been having no issue. I think the first tenant stayed for a year. Uh, we got a new tenant within like less than a month. So, yeah, that has been much better than the first property. How much does it lease for? Uh, both of them lease for 1500 And where is that second one located? Uh, the second one is in... Richmond. Richmond, Texas. Yeah. Okay. That's terribly bad luck that you bought that first property just prior to Harvey. Yeah. In Houston, we have floodplains, which I'm sure you're familiar with now, 100-year or 500-year. And I assume that the property wasn't in either of those floodplains, which is why flood insurance wasn't required. Exactly. And since you wouldn't expect that you would get a once-in-a-thousand-year type flood, you didn't buy it. That is extremely unlucky. Yeah. Yeah. Our property manager told us, we call him, we say, hey, hopefully everything is okay. We were calling him to check on him and his family about the the uh, hurricane situation and he said yeah everything is fine but I have bad news two out of mine I don't know he has hundreds of properties got flooded and one of those is yours but I'm going to do everything that I can to help you and he has been very helpful because again we were already uh, we were we've never been to Houston beside that trip you did for us it's an investment so having to deal with contractors and all of that he was taking care of all of that for us um, he was super helpful. So that's why we really like him because he clicks with us. I think the French connection might help. I just have a good karma with that person, a good feeling. Um, so yeah, and we've met with them, him and his wife, when they come visit to San Francisco. So good people, just bad karma, I think. Mm. On that one property, On that yeah. One, yeah. But the other one has been good. And so it hasn't deterred us from real estate investment. We just think 
yeah. yeah. We just we had just, bad luck with that first one. And we just purchased flood insurance on both of them just... Just in case. In case with global warming. What does that cost you? Maybe 400 a year? Uh, I think it's 600 on the 600. So it's still... Yeah. There's a guy that was in, on episode 305 of Bigger Pockets that gives some good tips on screening tenants, and he is from Houston. So you might want to check him out. The 1% rule on gross <laughs> rents that you mentioned, that is, so if you buy a property for 180000 you expect it to rent, or you hope that it would rent for 1800 a month gross, correct? Correct. But you deviated from your rule just a bit there, right? Because you said the after rehab value, including the fee of the property you bought in Richmond, was 180 but you're leasing it for 1500 roughly, right? Yeah, I guess with that one, we made a bit of an exception because our actual out-of-pocket costs for that property was 150000 so we were okay with the 1500 rent. Ah, okay. So, but yeah, the actual market rate value of that property is 180 k Okay. I was reading your blog, and I really liked the article called The Paradox Between Time and Money. You write about the pros and cons of money and time and one of the things that you said is that when you buy things there's not a lot of time to really get value from it and you gave the example of buying an expensive piece of real estate but only spending a third of the time in it and it reminded me of a guy that I used to work for who was always talking about how we needed to make more sales so that we could buy the lake house but those are the houses that you spend only a third of your time in, right? Um, he also had a weekend car. so. Um, <laughs> but you, you go on, I think you had a, a paragraph or a section of it titled, When Time is Abundant, Money Can Be Scarce. And that kind of falls under what we talked about earlier about how slow travel is less expensive travel. The fact that you track expenses does that keep you from purchasing big ticket items? But I think for us, it's what bring you, it's going to be silly, but it's what bring us joy at the end of the day. I think uh, there was another article on that blog, which has that diagram um, about, uh, which is titled, how do we spend our money? Mm-hmm. And it's basically the first thing is like, okay, are we buying, are we buying stuff or are we buying an experience? If we're buying an experience, it's pretty simple. Most of the time, if we're excited about it, we just go buy it. Um, what's cool with experience is like every experience is different. So you can, based on when you are, if you decide to say, oh, I'm going to travel to, let's say, Chiang Mai um, and eat the food there, it's going to be a different experience than traveling to Mexico and eating the food over there. So even though it's maybe the same experience title, the experience is always different. So for those ones, we don't mind spending um, to do experience. When it comes to stuff, though, we ask ourselves, I think, three questions. Is that something that we, are really, we really need? Because there is many things you buy because it's shiny and you're never going to use it. So if that's not something we're going to use multiple times, months, we are not going to buy it. Now, if that's something we're going to use, let's say, every day or weekly, the next question is that, does it add value to our life? Um, so some things that can add value for me, for instance, might be uh, e-books, uh, we stopped carrying books, obviously, because we have limitation. But yeah, in electronic books, hiking shoes, my Apple Watch to track my steps. And something that subscribe value can be a TV, um, a game console, or a smartphone, for instance. So if it adds value, yes. Let's uh, go to the last stage, which is 
um, is it the best way to get that value? And that's where we start looking into, do we want to get that specific product? Is there a competitive product that's the same, which is less expensive? Or, or if we like that product, do we need to buy brand new? Is it okay to buy refurbished and all of that? And that's basically the decision-making process that we go through uh, when we decide to buy something. Um, so when you say, do we sometimes buy big ticket items? I would say that we haven't bought anything like big, I mean, stuff-wise, not really. I think uh, we just spend a ton of good quality backpacks and packing cubes and that stuff, but that's not really expensive. I have a drone, so, but that's like a thousand bucks. Um, so yeah, we are not really buying very expensive things. When it comes to experience, though, yeah, that definitely would be much more points to go to a show, to go to a cooking class, to go... But again, those things in the grand scheme of things are not qualified for me as big ticket at them. Like, uh, but the month that you bought the drone, for example, so if you spend $30,000 in a year, yeah. which is $2,500 a month, yeah. did you have to put that $1,000 expense in your tracking, your expense tracking? Uh, yeah, yeah. So actually, the, yeah, in the 28000 in the 28000 um dollars that we spend uh, on our first years, we are breaking it down in categories. One of them is called uh, travel gear, and we spend 3000 in that wow. category. So 3000 of your 28000 was on things like a drone? Yeah, basically <laughs> his toys. <laughs> <laughs> you have some clothes items there, but I think it's not as expensive as uh, yeah, electronics. Uh, a few things. But again, those are just one-time items. Uh, we are trying to downsize stuff and... Um, I think the drone was probably the year prior. What I was on that year was the laptop um, because I left my work and they were, I was borrowing from their laptop, so I had just to get my own. Yeah. One of the things that we did today, I, I mentioned this earlier, we went zip lining. That I don't think is something that we would have done on the first few days of the month. So because we track our expenses on an app, you get to like the 26th, 27th of the month, and you say, well, how much is the expensive zip lining package? Oh, it's $65 each, which is $130. And we spend roughly what you guys spend, a little, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but that's 5% of our expenses for the month. But if you get to the end and you realize, well, we've only spent $2,700 this month, and we, can, and we can splurge on the nice package of the zip lining and act like Tarzan through the jungle, right? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're travel hackers, right? What's the biggest big benefit you've gotten from travel hacking, do you think? I think just being able to travel close to free, uh, at least across continents. It doesn't really, the miles don't really work within the, the discount airlines within Europe and Asia, but we've been able to fly from the U.S. to Europe this year and from Europe to Asia, um, essentially for free, just having to pay the taxes. So our only other flight expenses are, are the sort of inexpensive discount airlines that get us within Europe and within Asia. And how were you able to do that? Uh, well, so <clears throat> because we are still resident of the U.S. and we have credit score, we can basically apply for credit cards. And those um, credit cards in the U.S. let you provide you with massive sign-up bonus. Um, we are talking about um, 50 to 18,000 points, which is roughly worth 200 trip tickets uh, each time you get those bonuses, uh, international round trip tickets. Um, and we have basically been churning. Usually, so those sign-up bonuses, so you basically, you open the credit card, you need to pay in full on time, 
and then you spend between one to five thousand within the first three to five months to meet those um, limits, and then you get those big bonuses. So because our average per month was about three thousand um, within a three months window, um, it's relatively easy for us to open those cards. So we've been opening a bunch of them, um, and yeah, you just open that one. Make sure you close it at the end of the year because then you start occurring fees. And uh, there are some limits. Uh, we can dig into this if um, if you want. But you open those credit cards, you pay them in full, you get the bonus, and then use those miles to travel for free. So you're tracking expenses, and you're traveling so much that you're getting a good idea of how much it costs to live in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You, don't you have this idea of helping people to track expenses for different parts of the world? So we, we wanted to track our budget. So we started with basically a spreadsheet, pretty much. And then every month, as I was, I wanted to basically make sure we were on budget as well as wanted to build a cost of living index around the world to give us an idea of what it will cost to live anywhere. Um, we started doing a lot of spreadsheets, and I was not really happy about the solution out there. There is some cost of living website, but the data was so out of range. Doesn't doesn't seem to be matching what we were spending. So as a software engineer, I said, okay, I'm just going to build an app for that, build a tool for myself, which I did over the summer. And then I was thinking, well, probably not the only one that wants to make um, tracking of expense something that should not be a uh, uh, work, especially when you travel. So that's why the idea of that tools came, came about. And um, yeah, that's something we are giving away for free on our website for everybody that wants to track their expense. And the, the really value adds there is that as everybody, we are hoping to reach to as many people as we can. So as people use the tool for themselves to track their expense and see how much they are uh, spending, then we can start building that cost of living database across the world. Because now we know, uh, let's say you use our tools, you go to uh, Bali and you put your expense down, we have a reference point about what's the cost of living in Bali um, is. Yeah, so, so right now it's all of our expenses in all of the countries that we've been to, but the idea as more people enter their expenses in all the countries they go to, then we'll cover a lot more places and we'll cover a lot more different travel styles and we'll cover, we'll just have a lot more data points to be able to share. So it's open source. So the fat fire or crowdsource where the fat fire folks can contribute and the lean fire and everybody will have an idea of, do you know what I mean by fat fire? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, everybody can put their information and then we'll... Based on their profile, you can say this is the type of cost of living based of your profile. So if you are fat fire, that would be how much you would be able to spend. Europeans are better, I think, at living in the moment. And the American way of life tends to be go, 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 more, 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 less vacation days. I have a, a German buddy who is always trying to get me to relax. I'm better at it now that I'm quote-unquote retired. But for a lot of years, for me, it was all, I always had goals. I always was working toward them. It was fulfilling to do so, but I was maniacal. I didn't take any vacations for 10 years. I had things I wanted to accomplish. You and I are probably a lot alike in that regard, I would imagine, both of you. But I know that you still set goals despite not being in the workplace anymore. Can you talk about 
what sort of goals you set, why you still set goals and how you think about them? Yes, yeah, so I was looking at Mrs. Normal Numbers because I think she was the one uh, um, was, I think she felt that that was crazy, but um, I don't know, maybe I'm a type A personality. Um, I just like, um, I think I like to show that I'm adding value or I'm l always learning or doing something. So for me, goals are a way to stay focused and get things done. I think that's what I've done all of my careers from software engineering to program management. Like, yeah, I think goals are driving me. So I'm just using goals now to become better at something. So it can be around the health. Uh, we've been focusing a lot about health stuff now, or it can be about like, we have our blog. So just, yeah, some goals around that. Um, yeah, uh, it's, but it's not, I don't see that as a bad thing. I just see that as a way to, um, yeah, get stuff done. He, he does have a European, I, I'd say, values and mindset in that I think he prioritizes the right things. Like, he's really good about prioritizing family and friends and free time over work. Um, he's really good about, like, when he was working, he's really good about not working on weekends and having time just, just, just for family, spending time with family and friends. But he is very organized and project-centric and goal-oriented. And so I joke now that he retired from project management from tech, but now he's project managing our lives. And <laughs> it's, it's and yeah, I do think he's crazy sometimes, <laughs> and I do call him out on him and I say, hey, I left the job workforce not to have quarterly goals anymore so let's not talk about quarterly goals right now but at the same time i'm very appreciative of of him keeping us on track on certain things that we want to accomplish personally even if it's not you know financially or career-wise it's just nice to like have conversations about these things and let and be be decisive and be intentional about all the decisions that we're making rather than just letting things happen Yes, and the quarterly goals, I think I did that because that was what I was doing in my previous, uh, at work, and it's a good thing, like I said, a good way to get things done, but I think we've stopped doing that. It's much more, okay, for 2020, where do we want to go, what do we want to accomplish? I think as we do our New Year's resolution, we both like to have some uh, intentional reflection, so we look at what we do the year prior, the things we liked the things that were not so good and how we want to design the following years. I like that because you can't abdicate your role as a leader, right? But also you don't want to be micromanaged, right? So uh, we, for the first time this past year, I, I did my annual goals with my wife and I had never done that with someone before. But on December 31st of every year, I shut everything out and I focused for 90 minutes on the previous year see what it is that I learned and who I met and how I'm going to harness that year and make the next year better. I had to do it with somebody else this year and it was weird or last year. Um, but yeah, we also have quarterly check-ins and go over things and see how we're progressing. But uh, yeah, that's important. So I think I'll always be that way. <laughs> Don't lose it. I think yeah. it's important. No, yeah, I think the, we like the check-in process um, just to, yeah, check, just as a relationship standpoint. I think it's really good and very healthy because it's something, you know, we don't want to be in 20 years and say, oh, by the way, like the things that happened 10 years that I didn't really like, if you wait 20 years, it's too too late to fix it. 
So at least taking once a year, we have been good at doing it once a year. Maybe we should try to do it more quarterly. But again, I will let it up to Mrs. Norman mm. Number of how much she will think is good enough. But, <laughs> <laughs> Why are you anonymous? Um, I think we're just naturally private people in general. Um, so even prior to discovering fire and like pursuing this, we didn't share a lot about, and probably more so me than you, because I think in Europe you're more open about things like salary, income, savings, investments. This it's just not things I grew up talking about openly, and um, so yeah. So, but we do want to we do want to share this journey, and we do want to share this message, and we do want to share the numbers. We just don't necessarily want it tied to us personally. So we decided to stay anonymous. We might change that eventually as we get more comfortable with the idea of it. But um, yeah, at least starting out, I just didn't feel comfortable sharing this out in the internet world with a bunch of people that I haven't met yet. Yeah, and um, yeah, and that's why we are we are also not sharing the size of our nest eggs because I don't think it's relevant for people that want. To, we want to inspire people to really design the life they want for themselves. So we are can we are very open to share how much we spend. I think we think that's much more meaningful. So then people say, hey. You know, if you can't uh, if you can spend thirty thousand to travel the world for a year, this is the way we are doing it. So you can see whether or not you would like it, or if you need more. Um, yeah. So we are anonymous for now for the reason that Mrs. Norman Number mentioned, and but I don't think we will ever get to the point that we will share uh, all of our the details of our. Um the size of our nest eggs, basically. I think I don't think it's relevant. For people, it might just distract them and say, oh, well, I would never get to that level, or they think it's going to be too low. I don't, I don't think it's relevant for the questions. I think it's much more like, how much does it cost to live somewhere? And that's why uh, we've been spending a lot of time to document and share the stories. I'm going to ask you some fun questions. Are you ready for some fun ones? <laughs> yes. What is the simple path to wealth? From our perspective... I think the, the way we tend to explain it to people that are, are new to the concept and are huge spenders and not thinking, are not thinking about their finances is you simply just need to save 50% of your income, invest it, whether it's in real estate or in index fund, whatever you feel more comfortable with, keep your, keep, uh, but naturally then you'll keep your expenses low. Um, and then after that, you'll be able to live off that and live off um, and you could choose to follow your passions and leave your job. And that's how we describe it to friends that are curious, but not necessarily into the technical details. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the technical answer. I think what we also like to add is also just don't live the life that people want you to live. If you want to compete with your neighbors and get a bigger Tesla or a bigger swimming pool, at the end of the day, it's not going to do you any good. So I think there is a part of that simple path to wealth that has to be about just spend the money for the things that you really need. Um, and I think that will go a long way. A lot of people, some of um, our friends are just like spending money because they're uh, co-workers sitting next to them spend the money or because they become VP and they need to get a boat or that type of stuff. Um, I think um, I think it, there's also a component to that. Yep. 
I had Physician on Fire on this podcast recently, and he also advocates for spending 50% or living on 50% of your income. But you guys pushed it to almost 80. So if you want to retire extremely early, early, I, I recommend pushing it closer to 80. I think, too, that traveling around the world, you realize how much money and happiness, or at least you, you, it's better illustrated for you that the relationship between money and happiness is not that strong, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, doesn't that just become crystal clear when you visit other countries? I mean, you go down the street at Chiang Mai and you realize, whoa, these people don't make $100,000 a year. They're just as happy as my buddy in San Francisco who makes three times that much. Yeah, we actually been to Nicaragua two years ago, which is one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in Central America. Mm -hmm. But they also are the second happiest on that same region. So we were asking the locals, why is that? And they say, well, they have their basic need covered. So they have pretty good free health care, free um, care and education. education, and yet they are not exposed to all of those shiny objects, so they are just uh, having fun with little things. Yeah, we've become so prosperous in America. I think that technology and distractions, and as all of that increases, I notice a return to the old school way of doing things. It's like people are, are starting to meditate more. You know, that's become in vogue. I'm doing it too. I'm sure mm -hmm. you, are you guys meditating? Yeah, we're going to a meditation retreat tomorrow, actually. Awesome. Is it a silent thing? or No, it's a two-day meditation retreat through the uh, temple nearby, but it's not silent. Mm -hmm. So how many, how many hours do you meditate? Do you know? Um, it's a full day on tomorrow and then a half day the next. I'm sure there, there's also some explanation on the techniques and Buddhism in the background and stuff, but I think the rest of it will essentially be meditating. Mm. And I think that we're waking up at 5 a.m. Oh, that's right. What's the biggest benefit you've gotten from meditation, do you think? For me, I, I like to do it starting in the morning and, um, and right before bed. I think I, the reason I choose those times is in the morning. It just sets me up for the day, um, prepares me to to be open-minded about the things that I experience throughout the day, and then it also puts me in a positive mood rather than starting the day like frazzled or without intention or without without a clear mind. And then nighttime is a good way to wind down just just to go before bed because. Um, I'm guilty of still being on my device pretty late. I'd like to turn that off right before, uh, like a couple hours before bed, ideally, but I don't end up doing that. And so I'm still a bit wired from, you know, what I just read. So meditation right before bed helps wind me down and then I can have a better night's sleep. And I think for me, um, especially since you mentioned people in the U.S. and I've lived there for 10 more years, people spend a lot of time to take care of their body but they don't take a lot of time to take care of their mind. And I think meditation, it's like one of the easy ways, like medication for the mind. And for me, I practice it in the morning uh, pretty consistently now. I think the, um, the meditation retreat is because we just want to be better at it. I think we still are newbies and we don't know everything about 
the Buddhism and there was a lot of things we want to learn more into the lifestyle and the philosophy behind it. But yeah, it's medita medication for the mind and yeah, we want to live longer, happier, and I think if we don't take care of our mind, we become... I think that's such an interesting perspective coming from a European that we take so much time to take care of our bodies, but not our minds. That is the type of insight that I get from one of my best friends who lives in Germany. He is always calling my attention to things that are different between Europe and America, and he nails it every time, and I think you just nailed it too. Because you don't see a lot of buff dudes walking around Europe right? But they're more, they have better control of their mind, I think. And, yeah. And they more live in the moment. Yeah. And well balanced. Self-awareness. Yeah. And that's a good point. I, I was listening to something earlier. I think it was the Radical Finance podcast. And he did a monologue type podcast. And he was talking about how today you wouldn't trade places with the richest person in America 30 years ago, if you had to give up everything that we have today. And I think mm -hmm. that that would so apply to us and what we're able to do now, right? Because today, for example, when we zip lined, we took the, the motorcycle and I used Waze and was able to find it so easily, right? Yeah. That's the kind of thing you went to Nicaragua. Would you have navigated Nicaragua 30 years ago? I mean, it would have been a lot harder to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the fact that you're constantly connected we can hop in a tube and go anywhere in the world, which is an airplane. And the cost in real terms has, has been reduced by half in the last 30 years. So. Yeah, we've been using Airbnbs. Without Airbnbs, like 20 years ago, like there was no way we could have just go in uh, um, like very remote places. In Mexico, we went to Tepoztlan, which was that wonderful little town. We just find an Airbnb there for two days and we have the time of our life like um, knowing that culture is still not very touristy, but yeah, without uh, a, a technology like this one, that platform like Airbnb, then it would have been much more work to find a place, to even have to talk to some locals, so yeah. Yeah, and I'm really grateful for all the education that's out there. I feel like I learned so much in the past few years about finances and investing and what uh, different lifestyles can be and reading inspiring stories of other people doing the same. I, If I hadn't been exposed to all that, I'd still be working a full-time job, really stressed out, and thinking that that would be the rest of my life. That is so true. You know how many people joined the fire crowd after discovering Mr. Money Mustache's blog? Like yeah. half of bloggers attribute MMM yeah. Yeah. yeah, to their lifestyle. Yeah, I think that should be now. part of the curriculum. Of, <laughs> yeah. right. No, I mean, of seriously, course, like, yeah. because it's just one article, like the simple math to wealth. The shockingly simple oh, yeah. math. The shockingly simple math math to early retirement is one of the uh, most popular articles. Just explain the simple relationship between your saving rates and your retirement age. And once you understand that uh, the more you save, the less you have to work, then... Yeah, you can put things in perspective and just work 10, 15 years. And yeah, if you decide to make work optional, make work optional. We are not telling that people should stop working. I mean, we are still working, but at least you have the freedom, you have the F-U money, and you have the freedom to work on the things that you care about. 
It should be noted, though, that we are having this conversation at the end of a 10-year bull market, right, where we've seen Japan's stock market stay stagnant for 30 years. So that kind of thing can happen. And had that happened the last 30, we might not be having this conversation. If it dips 38% next year, we might not be having this conversation. Very true. Something, yeah, we've been very blessed in that regard. And I love what you said about Airbnb and, and how we wouldn't be able to have the experiences that we're having now. We're sitting in someone's condo where they live in a high-rise or mid-rise condo with all of the amenities. I mean, this place has a sauna. It has a Starbucks about 50 meters from here. I'm even saying meters now. We don't say that. (laughs) So we get to completely live like locals, and it's amazing. And we paid – you want to guess what we paid for this place? Uh, 700 a month? $659 a month. Great. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's around what we're paying for our condo. It's also like a nice modern condo with a pool and a gym and everything. We don't have the sauna. We don't have the sauna, though. But we were talking to, I mean, there's a really big nomad group in, in Chiang Mai, and I was talking to people that have done this a few times. And I met a lady who... Um, she does, she doesn't book through Airbnb. What she does is she comes a few days earlier. Um, she stays just at a hotel for a few days and then she goes on site to the different condos and sees properties and, um, gets the rates directly through them. And she got, it was a, she showed me pictures. It was nice. It was much simpler. It was a studio because she was just one person, but she managed to get a place not too far from here in the Neiman area, which is really popular for $150 a month. Wow. Yes. And so this, that is what the regulars are doing. The people that know where to find the places, you can live really inexpensively in Chiang Mai. And she's in a really nice location, really close to us too. So it's not like she's living out in the boonies. And yeah, she don't have the swimming pool, but with all of that extra money, you can upgrade to go to the local pool, get the membership, get your massage and all of that stuff. Yeah, can you imagine? Basically a year's worth of rent here is like one month in but that's next level. That's the thing we want to share more with people. Um, we have been sharing interesting tips with Airbnb, but I think once you get to the local places and you know those like second level type of uh, tips, then uh, because those are very specific to the cities, um, yeah. then yeah, you can really get your dollars work much more for you. Yeah. There was a guy at the immigration office the other day because we had to go to extend our visa. And he was saying that he enrolled in a self-defense class, sort of like a Muay Thai or Krav Maga or one of those. And he did that. It was a year-long class, and he did that in order to be able to stay for a year. Mm. And I said, well, how's it going, man? Could you, could you kick my ass? Could you kick anybody's ass? And he said, well, um, I only go to sign in, and then I leave. And they're <laughs> fine with it because they don't want a lot of people in the class. <laughs> Like what? Yeah. So yeah, the regulars have all these little tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of tips like that. Is there a book that most impacted your decision to retire early? I think I would say The Simple Path to Wealth from Jim Collins. Um, for me, that was like just so we understood. From Mr. Money Mustache, we understood that, yeah, it's all about your saving rates. But then they say, well, then what do you do with that money? Well, you put it on the stock market. And for me, it was like, well, I was investing a little bit in France before 2008. All of that went down. Uh, All of the recession, like, I was really worried that that's not going to work out. Those people are just investing at the right time. So 
whatever you do right now is going to work, but he's doing a great job at explaining how to diversify your risk and how to, um, because he has been in those markets through those recessions, how to make sure that those investments will resist those events and also making sure you are aware that those events are normal. It's just the market cleansing, the, the market's going through its regular uh, cleaning, um, cleansing cycle. So, yeah, I think uh, if you look at the market over a long period of time, it's always going up. Um, so he's doing a really good job at explaining in very simple terms. Um, so that would be a book uh, that I would recommend for people to get exposed to that. Yeah, that book really put me at ease and I think it'll prepare me for when the recession does come because I am more risk adverse and I am probably more likely the one to, to have cold feet. But after reading that book, it made a lot of sense. I get the logic. He tells it in a way that's um, like a story. And so it's not like one of those boring finance books where, you know, you pick it up and you you they were only for letters, right? For oh, his... yeah. He originally wrote them as letters to his daughter, and so they're really, really easy to read. And so, it, it, uh, yeah, I really absorbed that information, and I'm prepared for it for the next recession, and I'm, I'm, it mentally prepared me to be in it for the long run. I'll link to the book in the show notes. Who read it first? I think you did. Yeah. Roughly at the same time. Together. <laughs> We actually attended Chautauqua, which is a popular financial independence retreat Retreat that was held in Ecuador, and Jim Collins was there. And so I think we both wanted to read it before we, we were talking to him, which is what we did. I mentioned Physician on Fire earlier. He is in Mexico now, but is supposed to be in Ecuador, but they had some political unrest. Ah. Because of some sort of gasoline subsidy that was yeah, Quito uh, was there was a lot of uh, some of the some of our blogger friends, uh, blog at all option consider were there, and they were asking me for advice before this incident. I said no, don't go to Quito because I think Quito in general is has a lot of area which are not safe. But then they ran into that situation and they were kind of stuck for a few weeks. They were not sure whether or not they could leave the house. There was fire next to them, smokes, so very scary. Yeah. Latin America is tough because Nigeria, I'm not Nigeria, Nicaragua's been a place that you wouldn't want to go the last year or so. We went two years ago also, mm. San Juan del Sur and Leon. Did you go to Leon? No, we spent a lot of time in Granada. Yeah, we went to Granada And too. Little Corn Island. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, I want to go there. It's beautiful. Very cool. If you were 17 years old today, do you think you would go to college? I mean, for me, yes, because it's free. And <laughs> uh, no, no, um, more seriously, I think, yeah, no, I think for me, I would still go because it's, I think you, right now you need to go to college to get a degree, to get a job, even though I didn't tell you that. <laughs> I would question it. I, I, for sure, I didn't question it at all when I was 17. It's like, that was the thing you had to do. You had to get a college degree, to get a good job, um, to to get a career and have money to retire. Now I think you can get an education just as good by by le learning on the internet and watching YouTube videos and, and then it's specific to what you're passionate about. So I'm not sure it's worth all the debt anymore for a job that you won't like and 
probably a job that you will not be properly prepared for anyways through the, through the education you get at the university. So today I, I would really question whether or not I would do that. No, that's correct. Yeah, with all of the free content that people put out there uh, from, I mean, university like Stanford, I remember learning, wanted to learn iOS, uh, like developing apps for the iPhone. And all of the class taught at Stanford are available on their website. So you can get all of that. And a lot of universities more and more are doing this. Um, so yeah, you can talk to yourself. I think the only question is like making sure that you can get employed for an employer without a degree. But if you're a self-starter, you might not need an employer. You can be your own, which I think yeah. more and more people are Things are changing. Yeah. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? So I think the initial thing we would do, it would be quickly to invest it. I think that's just in our nature to save and invest. And given that the market is so high, we would continue to diversify in real estate. Um, but the fun stuff we would do with that extra income from the real estate, probably um, you know, treat our families to a yearly vacation to meet us wherever we are. We try to get them to do that now, but it's, it's much harder, I think, given that they're, they're working and they have their busy lives. But I think if we said, hey, we're going to treat you to a month in an island in Thailand, come join us. I think they do that. And that would be great, valuable time. And another fun purchase I think we do is we eventually want to have a home base at some point. And so we're kind of keeping an eye out as we're traveling. Um, so far, Portugal and Thailand are at the top of the list. So one day we would like to have a home base and probably put some of that towards our dream home. Cool. I just have a couple of more questions. Um, if you could visit only two countries next year and you only had five seconds to decide which two, what would they be? So do you want an answer for each of them or a consolidated? Four countries, two each. <laughs> you okay. go You have five seconds to decide. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to say Japan and Bali. Japan um, and Bali? I would say... Okay, I'm taking more than five seconds, but I would say <laughs> I would say Slovenia uh, because I do want to spend some time in Europe, and then in Asia I would pick I'd pick Bali to be with you. That's really nice. Why do you think Bali? So I've been to Bali, and we spent about a month there, and we love it. But isn't it crazy how popular it is in that it's just one little island in this Galapago? <laughs> There's so many islands in Indonesia and the Philippines, but something about Bali is magical. Yeah. So I haven't been in over five years, so I imagine it's even more popular. And it was pretty popular five years ago. So I'm a bit concerned that it's lost some of the charm that I remember. Um, but what attracted to me about it was, you know, the focus on health and spirituality and nature and everyone's just so relaxed and they have such a positive outlook on life. They don't have much, but they're extremely positive. Um, there's also a great community there of like-minded people. So you meet a lot of inspiring people that are looking for, for the same, um, some like peace and a break from the chaos of of where yeah, you come from down to earth yeah like back to the roots like living in the present moment yeah not uh, judging your thing your life of how much stuff you own but just yeah 
uh, meaningful connections and simple things. Yeah, so we'll see because we'll we'll probably be there in February or March. So we'll see if we. But just for one month, like yeah. It doesn't feel like it's enough. Yeah. We keep saying that we're going there for three weeks, and we were there a month last time. But three weeks doesn't feel like enough. Yeah, I think part of it is the lush nature of all of the greenery. Every you know, they say that nature makes you feel good. Yes, get out in nature; true. it's uplifting. Yeah. yeah, so it's hard to be in a bad mood in Bali. And then just about every place you stay, you have your own pool, right? Yeah, <laughs> that feels pretty good too. Yeah. And then outdoor showers are a popular thing there. Is there anything else that you want to share with my audience um, before I ask where people can find you online? You know, now that we've been traveling for a year and a half or so, we've spent a lot of time trying to think about how we could be more responsible and sustainable travelers. And so we've made a conscious effort to, um, to have less waste. So like sort of following the zero waste movement, it's, it's kind of a, an unfortunate name because it's kind of almost makes it impossible to, to reach the goal. But we, as much as we can, we try to um, have zero waste and reduce uh, plastic usage and um, basically try to bring our own um, cutlery and bottles and bags whenever we go grocery shopping, things like that. Um, we also try to look for opportunities where we can give back and have if there's like a volunteer opportunities we've done things like visit the local animal shelter to to walk dogs um, and things like that and another way that we do it is just we just try to live um, healthy lives because we want to do this for the long run so we, we look after our health in terms of what we eat day to day and the quality of water all those things which is, well, yeah we're just taking small steps it's not perfect but um yeah, we're educating ourselves on it and trying to do what we can to, to make a better impact. And yeah, and try to also reduce our footprint. Yeah. I will be a new subscriber to your blog because they are, there are some great resources there. I noticed the carry-on packing list for both men and women. Right. That's really cool. I saw that you have a bit about Quit Like a Millionaire, which is a, is that a newer book? It is, uh, the book has been released uh, this summer. Um, it's from Christian Bryce. Uh, those have been one of the bloggers we've followed and also met at the Chitaqua that have been, they retire in their early 30s. I think they call themselves the earliest Canadian retirees. And similar to us, they've been traveling the world since then. I also was really into your post about why you started blogging. So you write that the greatest thinkers in the world consider themselves to be perpetual learners. And I am a voracious learner myself. And so we learners need to stick together. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you. What is your, tell us, share your blog's web address and where else we can find you online. Um, yeah, so everybody can find us at nomadnumbers.com. So that's the blog when we're putting content every week. We are also on most of the social networks. You can find them from our blog. Um, if anything, if people want to learn more about us, I think the best way is to subscribe to our newsletter. Um, we share some additional stuff, which is, which is not on the blog. And um, yeah, if people are interested about our travel app, um, you can get on it through our newsletter as well. Very good. It's an inspiring story, and you're generous to share it all in being here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us, Brad.
Yeah. yeah, we love connecting like-minded people, so this has been great. Great. Friends, thank you for listening. I don't take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time here with us. I hope that you follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter. I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. <laughs> <laughs>